Welcome everyone to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of uh, Unanswered Questions. Uh, today we have a guest with us, uh, and we're going to be looking into the Psalms. So thanks for joining us today, uh, Dr. Cole. Uh, thank you, Justin. Uh, and uh, we, <clears throat> I'd like to, first of all, introduce myself. Uh, my name is Bob Cole, and my brother Tim is the pastor down in Florida who invited me to do this uh, podcast. And uh, like him, I was born in Venezuela, uh, a Canadian parent, and had lived most of my life in the U.S. So, <laughs> uh, so I actually have three citizenships. <laughs> That's good, yeah. And uh, uh, the, my uh, background was, of course, in Latin America as a child, and then in the U.S. for the most part, uh, growing up in my education. <clears throat> I also spent a year and a half after, uh, after college in Israel on a kibbutz and in Jerusalem. Uh, picked up a little modern Hebrew. Uh, got introduced a little bit to uh, Israeli Jewish culture. <clears throat> and I think that probably uh, sort of set the pace for what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life, which is study Hebrew uh, and Aramaic, of course. But uh, I ended up going to seminary, Trinity in Chicago, Deerfield to be more specific. Uh, I uh, then went to UCLA where I did a master's and a PhD in uh, Semitic languages, and I actually wrote my dissertation on the tongue. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. I didn't realize that. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, my, uh, my focus was book three of the Psalter, and I, I examined uh, Psalm 73 through uh, 89, through the 17th Psalm. And it, in fact, it was published uh, as, uh, uh, what was the name of my book? <laughs> the, Shape, the Shape and Message of Book 3. Okay. And it was published by uh, Sheffield Academic Press, but I think the name has changed now. And uh, so my, uh, my focus has been the study of Hebrew poetry and the Psalms specifically. Uh, I wrote an article in Psalms 1 and 2 uh, after that. So I went from book 3 back to the beginning of the Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2, and I ended up writing the book on that as well, <laughs> which uh, is published by Sheffield Academic Press. Okay. And it's called Psalms 1 to 2, Gateway to the Psalter. I like that uh, published name. Published by, again, pardon? I like that name. That's a nice name. Uh, what, Gateway to the Psalter? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that was actually suggested to me by uh, the head of the publishing house, who is a scholar in his own right. Uh, he's a famous scholar. He's a scholar, in fact, by the name of David Klein. 
and he he he's the one who started Sheffield Academic Press. Anyway, I wrote that uh, on Tom's one and two, uh, and uh, it was not received nicely by a lot of scholars because I uh, I took issue with. Uh, a certain uh, approach to the book of Psalms that has dominated uh, the field for the last hundred years, which is called form criticism. And uh, form criticism was the uh, child of a guy named Gunkel, Hermann Gunkel from Germany. <laughs> and his theory that the book of Psalms is a, basically uh, chaos, a collection of, a chaotic collection of poems thrown together without any sort of order at all, <clears throat> he said, except in maybe a few cases. And uh, I had seen already in book, in book 3, 73 to 89, but in fact, that was not the case at all. It was ordered very nicely, very uh, <clears throat> very deliberately. And in fact, what you often have is between Psalms, you have a dialogue going on. Hmm. And uh, the way you can what's going on in the dialogue is by looking at parallel words from one psalm to the other. There's clearly, throughout the whole Psalter, <clears throat> a deliberate placement, sequencing of them. And in Psalm 1 and 2, I found out that up to 20% of the language in Psalm 1 is repeated in Psalm 2. Either lexical, uh, forms, roots, uh, or words themselves, whole phrases even are repeated. And that's the kind of thing that goes on throughout the Psalter. Uh, certainly in book three, it's dominated by uh, this complaint to God. How long before you uh, restore uh, the promises of Israel? How long? How long? Why? Why are you mad at us? That's a repeated refrain throughout the book. And uh, it sort of springs from the promises of Psalm 72, which hmm. is of the restored Eden. It's a picture of uh, prayer for Solomon, which takes us off into... Uh, a picture of Eden, and peace on earth, shalom everywhere, no oppression, uh, no injustice, uh, and uh, and that king is worshipped. <laughs> and this <laughs> was and this was just something that was totally uh, overlooked, huh? Yes. Well, you know, Gunkel was a man of his time, and we're all people of our time. Gunkel. Uh, following the 19th century, his books were written in the 20s, 1920, and there was a huge interest in the you know, historical background of the Bible. Mm. <clears throat> and there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, the idea seemed to be, and this is, of course, a problem with hermeneutics, that the way to really understand the Bible is to get behind the Bible. Mm. <laughs> so the problem with that is the text of the Bible becomes a window. And it's not a beautiful painting. The text of the Bible is a beautiful painting. It's a work of art, literally. And there's a message inherent in its words. And when that is eclipsed, you are, uh, in fact, guaranteed to miss the message. Now, is there a historical background? Sure. But uh, to spend your time trying to investigate behind what the author says is to miss what he says. That makes sense. So... When the Bible is a window, you're not looking at the window. You want to see what's beyond it. If the Bible is a beautiful literary work of art, like a painting, you are looking at its texture. It's that, it's the background within the text, the hue, uh, the foregrounding, all of these are things that are the work of an artist. 
I mean, biblical writers were artists in their own right. In fact, they were probably uh, they were probably the best literary composers of any literature in the world. And one begins to see how they manipulate the Hebrew language in order to express their message. It is sophisticated. It's uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it's literary art at its highest level, and I don't think Shakespeare or Goethe or Cervantes or any of the rest of them could hold a candle to what these Hebrew poets and writers of narrative can do. Uh, but it isn't easy to discern just on a quick read. Um, and in the book of Psalms, it's necessary to look carefully at what's going on in the sequence before you reject it. And that's the problem in the study of the book of Psalms. Uh, people come to it you know, and their professor, or, you know, their book says proper, whatever it was, tells them, no, this is just a bunch of ancient uh, hymns, prayers, laments, whatever, practiced in Israel, and we need to recreate the setting in which it was uh, done and so on. And there's no such thing as anything to this order. The order is uh, is really chaotic. It's by chance it came together, which means it's the only book in the Bible in which that happened. I said, wait, wait, wait. I think we got to... Assume, first of all, that there is something to the order, and then try and prove that there isn't. If there isn't order, it should be proved by the Hebrew text itself. And the Hebrew text actually proves the opposite. It is a deliberate order. And uh, the, the repeated themes, one to the other. Like, for instance, in the first uh, psalm, there's this uh, use of the word resha'im. It's repeated over and over again for the first, I don't know, uh, half a dozen or more psalms. And then it peters out. There's not that much use of it after that. It's used regularly throughout the book, but there's a there's a strong concentration of it. Um, and then you see, like between Psalm one and two, uh, it begins with Asherah uh, Ish, and it ends with Asherah Kol Hosevo. So, uh, blessed is the man, or an alternative reading which I like, all oh, the blessings of the man. Hmm. And then Psalm 2 ends with, oh, the blessings of those who trust in him. Well, that's a deliberate pairing of the two as the introduction. There's no doubt about that. That's, in fact, there's no title on Psalm 2. It hmm. follows from Psalm 1 directly without interruption. And even at that particular scene between the two, there's a word play between these wicked, Reshaim, and Rageshu, the nations who are in revolt against God's king and his Messiah. Uh, so there's the sound play. Uh, but it's quite clear from anybody who takes salt seriously as far as its order, that you can read the other people who have looked at it and say, yeah, the wicked of Psalm 1 are the nations in revolt of Psalm 2. It's quite clear. Uh, their faith is the same. They are destroyed in the way. And there you have the exact same phrase. Uh, uh, it's the word toved, Tovedu, which means to be destroyed, and the word for dead, the word dead, which means wait. And that's just one of uh, many parallels between the two. And as you go on, uh, if you read carefully, you see, oh yeah, he's continuing this whole idea of the wicked, the rebellion against God. And then he moves on into other themes. Like I said, book three is dominated by complaints. Now, one of the favorite psalms in the whole Bible, of course, one of the favorite chapters in the whole Bible, as well as in the book of Psalms, is Psalm 23. And it's usually interpreted as, uh, what? Uh, a nice psalm of faith in God, my hope for the, that it funerals a lot. 
Right. Yep. He's going to stick with yeah, us. Yeah. He's going to guide us by streams and yep. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember one day I was sitting at a commencement exercise and, uh, as usual, uh, you know, I, I took my Bible with me just in case the preacher sort of, uh, left me cold. Uh, but he was preaching <laughs> on Psalm 23 at the time. And, uh, I thought, well, of course, he doesn't read Hebrew at all. He's just preaching it from the English and uh, getting the standard view of Psalm 23. And I looked at Psalm 23, and my eye was caught by the word in verse 2. It's the word desheb. And desheb is a word that uh, usually translated um, green pastures, verdant, verdant meadows. I thought, Boy, that's an interesting word. It's pretty rare. Why is it being, why does he use that word? And I always ask questions. When I see a word that seems uncommon, I do a little searching to, think, to ask, where may that be found otherwise, and what are the implications? Turns out that this word is repeated uh, twice in Genesis 1 in reference to the green pastures of paradise. Uh, it's used in verbal form as well as not. And I found, and I saw in Joel chapter two, it was used for uh, the eschatological uh, restoration of the land. Hmm. And I began to see this looks like paradise. It looks to me like this sheep, Psalm twenty-three. He's, he's referring to himself as a sheep. Um, he's in paradise. And then, of course, when I go to the end of the psalm, I found I find that. Uh, he's in the house of the Lord forever. Well, he's there dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. But interesting. It's like the psalm opens and begins, begins and opens on the same note, which is um, um, heaven or paradise, not heaven, paradise. We are in the restored paradise. Well, uh, there's all sorts of things going on in Psalm 1 or Psalm 23 as far as word plays and so on. Uh, uh, for instance, when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Adonai ro'i lo'echtar, he's playing on that sound later in verse 4 where he says, lo'ira ra, which means, I will not fear evil. So he takes the word for shepherd, ro'i, resh ein and he's playing on resh ein, which means evil. <laughs> and it's just a further explanation of how God is the Lord is his shepherd, and he doesn't fear evil, and he also has no want. In fact, it uses uh, the negative low twice, one in each verse, and then the same um, sequence, resh ein. It's a word play, and there's a lot of it going on. And so, now, so for so for the listeners, it, as you describe those word plays, obviously it gives it gives us confidence that this isn't just random, you know. Uh, songs or random, you know, individual things put together, but are there any other implications they can take away from that? Like, you know, obviously they can have more confidence in God's word that it's structured and it's, it's real, it's important. It's, it's, it's not just random things writers, you know, through, through on the pages, but is there anything else that comes to your mind that, that as they hear these, these connections, these verbal and phonetical connections that they can, take away from that? Well, uh, it's a contrast between uh, the evil that it is confronting him in verse 4, 
He's walking through the valley of death, the shadow of death. He's not fearing evil. He's going through death, actually. Hmm. And uh, so it's the Lord who, who guides him through death. And in fact, uh, resurrection, as I'm going to show here in a minute. Uh, and in fact, Psalm 23 is not about us. So that's the title of my, my latest book, Why Psalm 23 is Not About You. <laughs> if you look at this uh, chapter, uh, that's just one of many word plays. One of them, for instance, there's a word play between gates salmaret and which means paths of righteousness and the valley of the shadow of death. And that word play means that because of his righteousness, his uh, shall we say, his faultless behavior, he goes through death without fear. And, as verse 3 says, my soul, he made it return. My life, he made it return. Not nephish, to mean anything from throat to breath to life to soul. And here, it means uh, his life. So when he said, Nakshi Geshoveh, in verse 3, uh, there's resonance there with the same word for life in Psalm 22, hmm. where it says, the verse 30. Actually, that would be verse 29 in the English. And that's another issue when I quote these Psalms and verses. Sometimes, I think Psalm 22, the station in English and Hebrew is different, whereas in Psalm 23, it'd be the same. Uh, that's the problem with the numbering of verses. Anyway, beyond Psalm 23, the question is, does it have anything to do with Psalm 22? And does it have anything to do with Psalm 24? And is the order important? And most people would say no. Well, if you take Psalm 22, most Christians would say, ah, that's quoted by Jesus on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama azatani. As the Aramaic says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why have you, my God, my God, why have you abandoned? And in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a contrast with verse, uh, chapter 21. And asking, what happened to the promises of 21? And he's talking about abandonment. Uh, he's surrounded by his enemies, and he's distant from God. In fact, the next word in Psalm 22, verse 1 in the English, 2 in the Hebrew, Rahok Yeshuati, far from my salvation, I find myself. Uh, so he says, you've abandoned me, and you're far away. And he keeps talking about abandonment. He uses the same verb. In uh, verse 11, 12 of the Hebrew, and in verse 19 in the English, 20 of the Hebrew. Tirhak, tirhak. These are, this is a threefold repetition of a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew verbal root, which means to be distant. So we could say that Psalm 22 is complaint about being distant and being surrounded by enemies. Well, the interesting thing is Psalm 23 talks about the very opposite. Hmm. Right. That's the very heart of Psalm 23, and it's in fact the mathematical heart of Psalm 23. Uh, if you count all the, the words of Psalm 23, there's 26. And the middle three are because you are with me. Well, do you think it's a chance that Psalm 22 complains about being distant from God, surrounded by enemies? In Psalm 23, uh, the enemies are literally looking on as he's enjoying uh, a table set before him and God is with him? No, it's not my chance. Uh, and I realized as I was reading Psalm 23 during that 
determine that we got something going on here. Uh, this this juxtaposition of 22 and 23 uh, is not by chance. It's deliberate. And there's all these verbal clues, language, to tell us that. You have distance, and you have closeness in 22. Distance in 22. You have enemies surrounding you in 22. And the enemies are, are looking on and uh, they're eating humble pie, if you will, in 22. <laughs> um, in Psalm 22, there is, in fact, death. In verse 15, the English, 15 is Hebrew. The Afar Mavit Kishkatein. In the dust of death, he took me. And to confirm that he actually died in 22, is verse 29, English, 30 Hebrew. And his life he did not keep alive. Hmm. Uh, the verbal form there is actually uh, the same root as to live. But it's in what we call the PL, the facultative uh, uh, voice, if you will. It means to, to make alive. And what's interesting to me is that that word, his life, he did not keep alive. At the end of Psalm 22 is the same word in verse 3 of Psalm 23, which is, my life, he caused it to return. Hmm. <laughs> and that Yeshovev, to return, is called polo, but it's actually the uh, same practice's voice of the verb shu, to return, to cause to return. Now, it, there's, it's just not, it's just impossible that the reference to life law and then life returns between 22 and 23 is by chance. It's not by chance. Uh, furthermore, Psalm 23 is a picture of a lamb. It gets to the lamb's enemies there. It gets to the enemies you see in 22. You've got lions and dogs and beasts. Um, here's the lamb being cut by the shepherd. He's in paradise. He's in the deshe of verse 2, the, the verdant paradise of the word from Genesis 1. Uh, he's being led by peaceful waters, uh, and his life has been returned. Hmm. And that explains why he is not, he doesn't fear going through the valley of the shadow of death. Because God is with him. Hmm. And uh, by the end of the psalm, he's in the Lord's house forever and ever, enjoying uh, victory over his enemies. And so there's no way Psalm 22 and 23 are just closed by chance. This is a deliberate answer in Psalm 23 to the the, uh, the death and the complaint of Psalm 22. And this is so typical of the Psalm. It's hmm. really typical. Uh, what I've said about Psalm 73 through 89 is basically a repeated complaint about the lack of conditions in Psalm 72. Because the conditions of paradise. Where are they? He's saying, you know, you know, you promised shalom in Psalm, in Psalm uh, 72. And uh, in Psalm 73, it says the wicked are enjoying shalom. He says there's going to be no oppression in Psalm 72. It's paradise. And in Psalm 73, he says, I see oppression everywhere. So these little links, verbal links between the Psalms, are hints to what we're to take from them. We're to take Psalm 23 as an answer to Psalm 23. Hmm. This is Psalm 22 is a complaint about the lack of salvation in 20 and 21. As that word salvation, uh, which is found at the beginning of Psalm 22, and his complaint, he says, 
My salvation is far away. It's different. Well, Psalm 20 and 21 repeat salvation over and over again, especially 20. Salvation in verse 6, salvation in uh, verse 7, uh, 8. Um, how many times is it used there? And then in Psalm 21, uh, it's rejoicing in God's salvation. And verse 1 and in verse 5, 2 and verse 6 of the Hebrew. So you have this repeated theme of salvation in 20 and 21. 22 is where is it? You know? I'm, I'm surrounded by my enemies. Uh, like dogs, they surround me. And, uh, and I end up dying. Okay? But he goes through death. And by the way, Psalm 22 at the end confirms he died. His life, he did not keep alive. He didn't keep him alive. And then in 23, whoa, we're in paradise. It's the answer to 22. It's resurrection from the dead. It's not about us. The same Messiah which the gospel writers saw in 22, and rightly thought, is the one in 23. Now rejoicing in paradise, resurrected from the dead, with his enemies looking on in shame. So that's the, uh, that's the message of Psalm 22 and 23. And by the way, in 24, there's a further description of his entrance. Uh, you could say he's in paradise, 23, but Psalm 24 is a discourse on how he enters in triumph. Hmm. Uh, with everybody looking on, in the glory of God. And he's divine, because the glory of this king entering, entering is the same glory of God. Uh, and indeed, throughout the Psalter, uh, right from Psalm 1 and 2, uh, you have the deity of the king. The Son of God, uh, and actually with Psalm 1 and 2, he's, uh, he's portrayed not only as a king in both cases, he's portrayed as a priest and as a conqueror. His, his success in Psalm 1 is defined in Psalm 2 as victory over his enemies, which he does. He, he smashes them like a potter's vessel in Psalm 2. Uh, that's paired with the success of Psalm 1. It's not success in your business or whatever. Psalm 1 is not about you, neither is Psalm 22. It's about King Messiah. He's a royal, priestly Messiah. Uh, and that's who is in view in 22 and 23 as well. So uh, I could go on about other things, but uh, that's how we should read Psalter. That's how it's been presented by means of uh, uh, the, the, the expression of the Hebrew text, the parallels between them. And uh, so... Uh, I think I'll stop there. But, uh, sure. So, as 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 you were speaking, uh, something that came to my mind was it. It seems like you you find a deep, threaded uh, gospel of Christ throughout throughout these these connections, don't you? Indeed. In fact, uh, in Psalm two, the, uh, the, the the advice given at the end is. Blessed are all those who trust in him. Mm. Who is who are we who's who is blessed? What is their blessing? And uh, who are they uh, trusting? Who are they supposed to be trusting in to get this blessing? Well, the bow there, which means in him, refers back to the Ben and the Bar, who are mentioned in Psalm 2, who's uh, the son of God and King Messiah. Uh, he's the Meshiko. Uh, he's uh, Benny, my son, he's his Messiah, and he's the brother. He's the son, it's an Aramaic term used, again, in a word for it. Uh, I won't go into it, but basically, the gospel is explicitly preached in, in uh, uh, 
uh, Psalm 1 and 2. In other words, this King Messiah conqueror, uh, chosen by God, enthroned upon the heavenly Zion, is the one you need to trust in. And if you trust in him, according to the last verse of 2, you will enjoy the blessings that he has. Hmm. The word for blessings there is ashray. By the way, that's a word play with ish in Psalm 1, verse 1. Hmm. Uh, he's uniting the man with blessings. Guess what? You trust in him, you enjoy his blessings. What are his blessings in Psalm 1 and 2? Well, he's talking his enemies, and he's sitting in heaven. And he's laughing back at his enemies, who are laughing at him in Psalm 1, but now he laughs back, and whoever laughs, laughs, laughs back. So it's, so it's somewhat of a return to the garden or a return to the blessing? In fact, Psalm 1 has uh, Edenic imagery. You've got a tree bearing fruit, and they bear it in their season. Their leaves never wither. Well, guess where you find that particular phrase? Once in the Bible, Alehu lo yibor. That is found only in Psalm 1 and Ezekiel 47. Hmm. Ezekiel 47 is clearly a picture. Is it Ezekiel 47 or 49? Let me make sure I cited that right. Sure. It's 47. Yeah. Ezekiel 47, uh, uh, 12. The exact same phrase is used uh, as in Psalm 1. There's no doubt that Ezekiel 37 is the eschatological Zion. It's the new, it's the new Jerusalem uh, with a river flowing out of it, bringing life to the desert. Tree of Life is there. You have all those animals that you see in Genesis 1 repeated there. Yeah, uh, Psalm 1 is paradise, just like Psalm 23 is. It's, uh, it's a picture of uh, this man, this faultless man. He is absolutely, as we would say in Spanish, in such a There is no fault. He is successful in everything he does. Uh, and, and what is that success? Right. Well, he's faultless, and his success is because he meditates day and night in, in, in God's Torah, in God's uh, counsel and teaching, which is, by, by the way, what Joshua was supposed to do. And Joshua, if he would do that, he would have had complete success. But he wasn't successful every day. A couple of times he blew it. Hmm. Uh, but that's why the idea of success in Psalm 1, like the success of Joshua 1, is clear scholars like to call intertextuality between the two. The same meditation day and night in the Torah is uh, recommended for Joshua and is a matter of fact what the man does in Psalm 1. So that success, you're asking, what kind of success is Read Psalm 2. It's conquering of the enemy. Joshua would have conquered all the Canaanites without uh, any uh, defeat if he had done that. This man doesn't. And he is utterly successful in everything because he's perfect. There's no flaws in him. In fact, the ancient rabbis uh, speculated, who is this man? <laughs> In fact, there's one German commentator who thought he was, uh, you know, the Uberman. He's a superman. This guy, who is this guy, you know? Uh, it's not you and me, but right. you and me are found in 12 if we trust him. Okay. And, uh, and so his victory, his position in heaven, he's seated in heaven laughing. It's a very anthropomorphic reference. Uh, he's, right. uh, he's sitting and he's laughing and he's called Adonai, the Lord. Yeah? What do you do with that? Right. Well, it turns out, it turns out that his session in Psalm 2 is a contrast to the session of Psalm 1. 
get these people seated in the seat of the scornful. These are people making fun of him in Psalm 1. In Psalm 2, he is seated as well. But he's now making fun of them. He's laughing at them because they're in rebellion against him. And uh, so uh, he's seated in heaven, and these are all part of his grace, his blessing. Well, if you put this all together, you realize that the ashray attributed to those who trust him includes all the ashray given to him, victory over the enemy, session, seated in heaven. And for those of you who know the book of Ephesians, Paul has us all seated up in heaven with King Messiah uh, as part of the blessing of God's people. Hmm. But where do you think Paul is getting that? He's getting it out of Psalm 1 and 2. Right. <laughs> He's not saying anything that he made up. Uh, he was just reading Psalm 1 and 2 as a tribute, uh, as a unity, and as a promise of blessing for his people. Who, in other words, they will inherit with him the ends of the earth, rule over it with him, the, uh, ruling, with, ruling with King Messiah. Uh, so um, if hmm. one takes seriously these verbal links between one psalm and the other, it's just remarkable what you find though. When I, when I did Psalm 73 to 89, uh, I noticed that in Psalm 86, you have a reference to uh, somebody, the, the King Messiah, actually dying. <laughs> hmm. And then uh, you have the same, and then in Psalm 87, uh, he's enjoying uh, rule in Zion. In other words, the people who come to worship him in Psalm 86 are defined in Psalm 87 as all these Gentile nations. Hmm. Um, but his death in 86, 86 is referenced very shortly in just one verse, you know. Um, it says in Psalm 86, uh, and it's been 25 years since I wrote my dissertation, so I can't quote it uh, right off the bat in Hebrew, so I'm turning to it now. I'm, I'm not disappointed. Uh, I'm, I'm not disappointed. Okay, okay, thank you. Uh, it says there... Um, Verse 13, which is, I think, verse maybe 12 in English. You rescued my life from lower shield. He died. Okay? In 87, he's very much alive. He's up there with all these Gentiles, citizens of the New Jerusalem, hmm. adopted citizens. And then in 89, it talks again about being put in shield verse 3, 4 of the Hebrew, and verse 7, uh, 6 of the English. Uh, what did I say? Yeah, verse 7 in Hebrew, 4 in Hebrew, and then it'd be 3 and 6 in English. So he uses the same language out of Psalm 86. So 87 is a commentary on all these people coming to glorify uh, him in 86. And then 89 takes us back to, so we say, uh, expound on his death. And the death of 88 uh, is one uh, that uh, seems to have no answer. He's hmm. separated from his friends of 87, his, his citizens. Uh, he's crying out, can I praise you from death? Can I make, talk about your great wonders in death? Uh, it's a complaint, and he's dead. He's in shield. He's in lower shield, just like 86. So you have 86 being expounded in 87, and you have 86 being expounded in 88. So where, what happens to the poor to King Messiah dead in 88? Well, in 89, 
the first six verses all have direct answers to his complaint of uh, the middle verses of 88. In other words, uh, will your great faithfulness uh, be recounted in the grave, uh, in Abaddon, in, in destruction? Uh, can they rise up from the dead and praise you and so on? Well, in verse 89, in chapter 89, he says, uh, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth forever. <laughs> the mercies of the Lord, the fidelity of the Lord, forever I will sing. Well, indeed, uh, he, he's come out of the dead, out of the dead, and is actually proclaiming God's faithfulness, and that's uh, what is uh, what is elaborated in the first six verses. There's all these parallels between the first six verses of eighty nine and those three rhetorical questions taken from the from the dead in uh, Psalm eighty eight eleven through thirteen. And so, what is the answer to the death of eighty eight? It's the resurrection of eighty nine. And, and, and that's and coupled that's, with. Go ahead. Yeah. With that. Well, it was so similar to what you've said of twenty-two and twenty-three. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, in Psalm eighty-nine, uh, he throws in a reference to the Davidic covenant. Hmm. Uh, he says, "You swore to David for your servant. Uh, you cut a covenant with David, your servant." And so. This resurrection from the dead is coupled with the Davidic covenant. In other words, uh, this is the eternal kingdom promised to David for his son uh, in Second Samuel 7. And uh, he's commenting he says it's resurrection from the dead. That's just uh, the implication is there. So Psalm 89 is the answer to this. And by the way, 89 ends with a lot of complaining again, okay, with Psalm 90 answers. Well, this is the pattern of this altar. It's, it's so clear from these records. See, I didn't base this because I wanted to make it fit. I just said, now why is he using Kesset in Psalm 88, verse 12? And then it's repeated in Psalm 89, uh, verse 2, uh, in the immediate following Psalm and in verse 3. The first two song, uh, verses of Psalm 89 refer to this Kesset which he doesn't see in uh, 88. Hmm. And how he's singing about it. And he's talking about his eternal, God's eternal faithfulness being built up, and so on. Uh, he uses another word, emunah, in, in 88.12. He says, uh, well, your emunah, your, your, your faithfulness, well, chesed is faithfulness, and emunah is practically the same. And it's used twice as well. In fact, at the very heart of Psalm 88, there's questioning of God's chesed and his emunah. And in the first two verses of 89, they're both repeated twice. He's singing about it. <laughs> so, you know, this kind of stuff is not by chance, but the porn critics today, they have decided uh, that, the, that the Psalms are a chaotic mess, a grab bag, no order at all, and nobody can, uh, nobody can disprove it. Well, I can disprove it easily because these writers are carefully choosing their words from one song to the other. They're linking them, and uh, that's the way we should be reading. But anyway, just just real quick, what's what's the what's the reasoning behind what what would be the reason why they would 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 want it to be chaotic? Just a just a lack of understanding, or is there some benefit? I, I don't. Wouldn't you want order? Well, it's always hard to uh, develop to, to understand the motives of people, especially mm. when they've been dead for hundred years. But 
Right. Uh, sure. This, they, they, they're part of a, of a mindset. You know, academia, especially biblical academia, is, they have a herd mentality. They, they go get their little dissertation done and they get their doctorate from some, you know, famous university and they just believe everything that's told. Whatever that guy in, in a position, some chair at Harvard or out in Cambridge, you know, whatever he says, they believe it. Okay? Right. And, uh, and they're not careful to step back and say, well, maybe there's something, hmm. maybe we're missing something. Maybe there, maybe there's another view. And one of the good things about, uh, learning the Hebrew is you can question everything these scholars say. If you know your Hebrew, you have every right. I mean, you're, let's put it this way. You are uh, capable of questioning. And when I see this kind of stuff, I ask myself, what's his uncle doing? Why didn't he see this? Right. I think it was because he came at the culture with a mindset that, you know, we got to somehow understand what's behind it. He wasn't, it was the eclipse of the biblical text is what it was. Mm. He was mm. more concerned about sort of digging behind it, looking through the window. The, the text itself became practically transparent. And he's reaching behind it because he says, I know there's a historical context that this must come from. I wonder what it is. And he gets so caught up in that that he forgets that there's a, uh, there's a beautiful picture in front of him. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. There's these, these authors are, are writers, and it's through their words that they're trying to tell you something. Hmm. And when you second-guess them and say, well, you know, I'm not so sure I care about what you said. I'm going to try and figure out where you live, uh, what your cultural and political and geographical and whatever context is. Of course, it's all of that is impossible. Totally impossible. Uh, because we just don't have dates for these. Right, uh, and even if we did have the date, who's to say the author didn't come, didn't say things that were completely contrary to the culture of his time? It seems to be yeah. pretty typical of biblical writing. So point. the only real objective data we have, the only uh, the only reliable data we have to interpret scripture is scripture itself, the text. That's yep. where the message is. In fact, that's where the divine inspiration is. Everything else is wholly subjective and uh, subject to, uh, you know, the seas of subjectivity. You can make up anything you want if you come up with some uh, contrived background. And it's done all the time. And certainly Gunkel did that. Now, I'm not denying that these may have had some sort of uh, origin in ancient Israel somehow. But the one who put the book together saw something far beyond just a nice lament or hymn or whatever in the past. He saw this as prophetic. And you see that if you, if you define music as the Bible defines it. <laughs> music is prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. When Moses and Miriam went out singing at the shores of the Dead Sea, they were prophesying. <laughs> when Saul came in the company of a band of prophets, and they were playing music, he started prophesying. Hmm. Uh, and prayer is prophecy. When Hannah prayed in First Samuel 2, she prophesied. She's talking about King Messiah. She's talking about the bringing down of the cloud and the raising up of the, uh, uh, raising up of the humble and all this. She's had nothing to do with what had just happened. She's given her son Samuel to Eli. Well, scholars think, you know, First Samuel 2 is completely out of place. It's not out of place. 
because it's part of the strategy the writer Samuel. Uh, he rehearses everything uh, Hannah says in the last words of David. It's clearly looking for the future. The prayer is prophecy. It even merits the prophecy in the Hebrew Bible as well. It's just, the whole thing is prophetic of the future. Uh, so it's, just, it's, it's, it's back to the future. The past is used to tell us about the future. The real back to the future. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that's uh, amazing. I, I think uh, just, just listening to you for the first time speak on, on this topic, um, I mean, the word confidence comes to my mind in the scripture, but just, just the excitement from seeing Jesus in, in, in every, you know, page, um, it's, it's also so exciting to just hear the gospel kind of threaded through all of these connections, you know? And I think that's something I would, I would have never known was even there. Yeah, you know, uh, you're, the New Testament writers are proven to be much more sophisticated readers of the Hebrew Bible than what is usually attributed to. Even by most Christian scholars and seminary professors, they often uh, speak in derogatory tones of uh, New Testament uh, exegesis, New Testament interpretation. They give it terms like midrash, they sense it cleanier and all this kind of stuff. And the fact of the matter is, it isn't midrash, it isn't sense of cleanier. They're reading it seriously. They're taking very seriously the uh, intentional, the, the, the verbal intention of the writers, the compositional technique, the artistry, everything, how it's put together. And they get it. They're competent readers. They weren't using the hermeneutic of the first century just so people would, you know, would listen to them or... They weren't uh, giving it meaning far beyond what it originally meant. Holy, I mean, what they originally meant to their audience. We don't know the audience. We don't know when they wrote. How, you know, how are you going to find that? Out? Uh, read the text. That's where the message is. Read hmm. how it's put together and appreciate the writer for what he's doing uh, at every level. Uh, be a uh, competent literary and linguistic reader. Um, and it turns out uh, Paul and the apostles... Uh, Synoptics that John, a whole bunch of them, uh, they were pretty good readers of the Hebrew. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, you find congruency there, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's. Yeah, anyway. No, that's fantastic. We're blessed to have uh, your time today and, and to have you on, uh, giving us just a sneak peek of some of the connections in the Psalms. Uh, some of this uh, different mindset of, of approaching the Psalms is not something that's. Uh, uh, thrown together, something that's, uh, you know, uh, bits and pieces of, of songs um, from, from a historical time period, but they're connected canonically and they have a, a unified message. Uh, so thank you so much for your yeah. time uh, joining us today, um, uh, Dr. Cole. And uh, we look forward to, to maybe having you on again in the future uh, to talk about some, some other uh, topics as well. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this episode. And remember to send all your questions to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com.